Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Soccer America, the soccer paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com and sign up for your subscription today. And by Nella from Fitbiomics. A Harvard doctor has found the probiotic strain that is found in most world-class athletes. Not all probiotics are the same. And by FundraiseForYou.net. FundraiseForYou.net provides solutions to coaches and athletic organizations that need to raise money for their programs. More information on all our sponsors at OverTheBall.com slash sponsors. Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, alongside Chris Chamides, Division II Men's Coach of the Year, for his stellar work grabbing a national championship this past year with the men's program at Cal State LA, now the coach of the women's program at Loyola Marymount out here in California. Today on OTB, Chris and I check in with the great Julie Foudy, World Cup champion, and I like to call her a global influencer. I worked with her a bit on um, uh, Over the Ball when I was over at ESPN, and she is so grounded and always makes so much sense that I just wanted to get her thoughts on where we are and what her thoughts are on this latest contract negotiations. Uh, ongoing, apparently, in principle, I guess the agreement has been made, but uh, with U.S. women and U.S. soccer. So uh, looking forward to that. Chris, I don't know if you know Julie, but she is a very impressive human being, to say the least. How are you today? I'm doing great, Kev. Uh, yeah. yeah, happy to be on again. And, uh, you know, I met Julie briefly. She had a fundraiser at Cal State LA, which is where I used to coach. And uh-huh. uh, we crossed paths back in the day and talked about Sam Coke. Uh, it was a brief conversation, but such respect for what she's accomplished in the game. Well, Sam Cook, who, for those who do not know, he uh, was the head coach of the University of Massachusetts, my alma mater. He had been the coach at Stanford. Uh, he took over a program, Chris, at UMass that was uh, about to be scuttled. It was a year where they, were just had, they wanted a coach to be just a filler, and they were going to get rid of the program. And then I guess with Hank Steinbrecher and a few other people, they said, hey, look, we're going to have a World Cup here in the United States, and you're dropping a program in a big state like Massachusetts. And so it became, it went from interim to uh, a full-time position, and they did not drop the program because of that, basically that threat. And Sam made an incredible go out of it, uh, a team that is incredibly underfunded. Uh, they have two, two scholarships competing against teams with full rides, you know, a lot of full rides. And yet Sam was somehow able to bring that team to the final four, which is absolutely absurd. And that was quite an accomplishment. Sam died. Uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he's left quite a legacy at the University of Massachusetts and to other people like Julie Foudy, you know, coaches uh, like, and like yourself, Chris. They leave quite an impression on um, on players. And, you know, it's funny, Chris, we, we didn't talk about the fact that we're going to talk about this, but what is always amazing to me to watch coaches, and I don't have the patience for coaching because I like to do it for fun, but not as a living because everybody's throwing darts at you. But what I have noticed is some of the guys or, well, I don't know women, but some of the guys who have struggled in a program during their four years are the ones who come back and it's meant more to them than anything else because it either kept them on the straight and narrow, uh, they were rebellious, and it gave them some, some sort of uh, consistency, some continuity. Have you, have you experienced that at all in your coaching career? Yeah, a lot of times it is the role player who comes back and, and just kind of reflects and says, God, this is so valuable to me. You know, and, and I think it's for all the reasons you said, and also they feel like they're a part of something. And they also know because they were a role player that maybe they didn't have to be there, but that coach believed in them and gave them that chance and that meant right. the world to them. 
And, and usually I have found, you know, the women are very thankful about that. Um, and, and they're in real time in touch with their emotions and are able to thank you for it. The men, it usually takes them about 12 years to grow up. Before <laughs> yeah, to grow up, Thank you. <laughs> Some of us are still growing up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I, think, I think men sometimes have real regrets. Uh, I was kind of, a, oh, I was a dick. I was an asshole. You know, I always say this to people. It's like, you got to suck it up. Uh, you know, freshmen come on the campus and they think they're going to be world beaters and they're not. And then I said, well, that's where you find a, the rubber hits the road. You got to bear down, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, start to work hard all over again as a freshman, hang in there as a sophomore, maybe get a few minutes that some people get injured, whatever your journey is, uh, it, it, it helps you in life moving forward. But I've always been, you know, uh, for Jeff Gettler, who, who coached me, he was at Richmond as well and at Lafayette and at UMass, he... Uh, you know, a lot of guys have come back to the program that, that he really struggled with. They were real behavioral problems, and suddenly they're like the most loyal people. So it's been fun. I had a good weekend. Uh, you probably were coaching all weekend, I would imagine, or watching soccer. Yeah, we had some scouting going on and uh, some sessions in the area that I wanted to go take a look at and hit the road running here on the recruiting side of things. Uh, but, yeah, between that, you know, one boy was playing tennis, one boy was playing soccer. We're spread thin, and – and Nancy and I are all over the place trying to kind of uh -huh. corral the monkeys into one direction. That's right. You're, a, you're still in the fatherly game right now. You're in the midst of it all. So uh, yep. I had kind of a single guy weekend this weekend. I went down to the Patrick Warburton uh, celebrity golf tournament. You know, it's always so funny when I'm uh, listed as one of the celebrities because I'll perform comedy. So I'm a celebrity once I perform comedy. But before I perform, no one knows who I am. <laughs> so it's, Harl, you get in these golf carts and, the, and like literally it's like, the guys look around, there's like three guys and then a, and a celebrity. And the guys are always like, they look around and if I'm in the cart, they're like, hey, hey, uh, who's our celebrity? And I'm like, uh, uh, it's me. <laughs> it's like, who the hell are you? I'm like, yeah, it's a good question, man. I don't know, sorry. Uh, I was on Sex and City. Just, just tell them, hey, I'm huge in Asia. <laughs> exactly, but I'm not. That's, I can't even say that. <laughs> it's like that uh, Mel Brooks, that was at, uh, what was it? Uh, he's world famous in Poland, so. Um, but it was an interesting thing. It was a, it's a fundraiser for St. Jude's. And um, so this young kid came up to, I was with uh, the film director, Peter Farrelly, who won an Oscar for Green Book. I'm working on a project with him, a kid's cartoon project. And um, the guy comes up to us and it's like a young kid. It's like, oh man, I loved your movie, man. He's like, oh, thank you, thank you. He goes, what's this a fundraiser for? And Pete goes, that's oh, for St. Jude's. And he goes, what? We're a fundraiser for gay dudes? <laughs> oh, St. <laughs> no, Jude's. Fundraiser Doesn't for gay everyone dudes. know St. Jude's? I mean, they're so well established. How do you get that? We one? know St. Jude's and we know gay dudes. So uh, <laughs> apparently more the merrier for everybody. But I'll say it, uh, Pete, Peter brought down uh, Larry David. So I got to have dinner with him and hang out a couple of nights in a row. And I'll tell you something, there's been periods in my life where I've tried to be famous or wanted to be famous. Um, Watching how people treated him, uh, invasion of his personal space and how inappropriately people acted, it was like, I, I, I don't want it, man. I'm telling you. First of all, we're in a private dining area and people are sticking their heads in and yelling, right? We're like, it's like 12 people sitting there just having dinner and they open up a private door and yell in like, hey. What do they yell? This is, Yo, Larry. And one guy's like, you saved me so much money on therapy, man. You know, so it's, he's just kind of like, oh, okay, he's eating his pork chop, you know, just kind of. Yeah, well, I, I think there's the Seinfeld fan, then there's the Curb fan, and then I, he had the, the big Super Bowl uh, commercial. So, you know, I mean, he's as big as ever right now, I can imagine. 
Uh, well, yeah, and it's huge. But it was like literally the adults, people over 40 acted fine. We tried to talk to them. That's fine. But we went into this one place called The Nest. It was just like this little bar. And we were going to go in the back area and just have a drink. As soon as he walked in, I'd say about 15 college-age people ran at him with their phones open and up and trying to film him. And it's like, and he's just like, and we just, we had no choice but to leave. So I thought, I thought like, well, that's kind of rude, man. You know? Uh, yeah. You know, he's so. so recognizable, right? I mean, even the Curb logo is his head, isn't it? Like it's- Head, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's just, so, it's just like so clear that it's him, right? So I just decided I don't want to be famous or have $450 million in the bank from, uh, from all the Seinfeld episodes that he's gotten. Good choice. Uh, Smart. Way, I know, to, way I to carve your path. Yeah, I tell you, I'm not going to take that shit from anybody. So, <laughs> um, so big games on this weekend. MLS opened up. Uh, did you get to get, watch a couple of those games? Yeah, opening weekend, which is exciting. They're starting a little early because it's a World Cup year on the back end of the year, right? Which they've mm -hmm. never done that before. So... Um, I, I think it's noticeable that the teams were, you know, kind of on the early legs. So I watched the in-depth, the, the LAFC game uh, against Colorado, and, and I thought both teams kind of slowed down a little bit around minute 60, which is about right for this stage of the year. They've only played X number of matches. Interesting. Um, but the great news for at least LAFC and for the league was Vela's back in a good way. I mean, fitter than he has been in two years, healthier than in two years. And oh, he's he turns, a great player, uh, he's a great player, man. Yeah. I, I, you know, I've, I've been fortunate to be around a lot of players through the years, you know, from Landon Donovan in San Jose all the way through all these years. I, I don't think I've ever seen a player more talented with the ball at his feet on a daily basis than, than seeing Carlos Vela train. I mean, he, his talent is through the roof and to, to the, what is tomorrow he turns 33. Um, and there's talk of whether or not he's going to be extended here in MLS or if he's going to go to uh, back to Europe, his, his wife is from Spain. He's from Acapulco. Uh, so there's this decision, you know, how do you get closer to family? How do you finish out your career? There's all these things going up at the same time. And I think LFC, you know, they're, they're in this, interesting spot right where he's been mvp level player but he's also been hurt recently so whether or not to extend them these are the kinds of questions that are you know in pro sports but that, that was a big part of it because he got like three goals in 50 minutes kev wow. he's that level well yeah and yeah he's battled injuries as you said and what, what kind of a player is he personality wise uh, training wise is he is he all in yeah, he loves to play. I mean, he plays with a smile on his face, which is enjoyable. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of a lot of players play with that snarl, and, and there's a place for that for sure. Um, but he's different, and and he he does it with a smile on his face. But don't misunderstand him because he's as lethal as they can come. He's so well accomplished. He's just so skillful. It's it's remarkable what he could do with the ball. It's uh, it's something that stands out at the MLS level, and obviously why he was taken out of Mexico as a young guy and brought to Arsenal and okay, maybe he was a little too young to, to get traction there when Arsenal was really, really good. Yeah. Um, he probably could do that differently if, if he had to do it again, but mm -hmm. got to Spain and had a long successful career in Spain before he came here. So what a talent, one of the best ever in our league. So, you know, I think Americans earlier have struggled going overseas a little bit uh, because it is such a change. And I think probably the Mexican players, it was the same thing. It's, it's a world of change to go over to Europe away from your home, uh, way away from your home and, and sort of different cultures and 
especially when you're so immersed in a culture, you're playing in the Mexican league with Mexican players and, you know, you're close to, you know, seeing your family all the time. And then you go overseas. Landon struggled a little bit with it early on. Um, and I thought Landon's journey was a great one because it was sort of like, he was quite honest and, and sort of knew himself or what, you know, um, or investigated himself as to what, what makes me happy and why. And sometimes they say with players, you never get to that, uh, that point of asking yourself that, those kind of questions. So, uh, yeah. If, yeah. He, if, he went over there as a young guy. He was only about 17 when he went to Leverkusen and, you know, probably reflects back and says he wasn't quite ready for that at that stage. Cause that's such a big jump. And then right. we all benefited in MLS from having him back here. And in San Jose, I was actually there when he came back from Leverkusen and worked for San Jose at that time. And, MLS championships and then went to the galaxy and, but there were always these little, you know, stunts that he had where like in January he'd go to Everton and, and, and all of us as fans, you know, we, it would whet our appetite that we oh, we had a guy in the premier league and he's that talented and he was doing great there, but he would come yeah. back here. And, and as fans, we wanted him there on the biggest possible stage, but it didn't matter what we wanted. They didn't want to, it matters what he wanted and he wanted to be here and Hey, that's his choice, his life. Good for him. Imagine an athlete, uh, you know, deciding what he wants. My God. So, um, all right. So, uh, the, also the Liverpool game, watch that, man. That was, uh, that was one of the best 0-0 games I've watched ever, I think, in the Carabao Cup, whatever the hell that is. Yeah, yeah. Kids, uh, keepers standing on their heads. Uh, goals galore, but no goals because everything gets called back. Uh, two teams that have been at the top for a long time, two great managers, and then with Liverpool getting it now, they're still in contention to win. When we always talk about Man United winning a treble, I mean, Liverpool could win all four this year. So between they've got this, then there's FA Cup, then there's the Premier League, and then there's Champions League. They're pretty well positioned for all of them. They may end up with none of them, but they could, can you imagine, all four? My goodness. I'd love to watch them play only because, the, you know, the, the stars, the superstars up front check back at hustle back, double down on balls. It's, it's wonderful to watch. And they've also seemed to have completely changed the outside back position. Uh, you know, these guys, they're, they're past the forwards half the time. It's, it's great to watch. Yeah, wing backs. Uh, they're not really wing backs, but they certainly go flying forward that way. And then they even can crowd the middle with some numbers and get narrow with their forwards and it allows them to play outside back to outside back, which is crazy they're really the only team yeah. in, the, in the world that does that and they can hit a ball with that precision and, and, you know Trent is is probably more or better served in the attacking half the defensive half to be fair um, but they're so dominant as a team that they benefit from his skills in that attacking half. You, you can tell though he's been called on the carpet a little bit by that especially with the call up to the national team or the lack thereof but uh, he seems to be concentrating on a little bit more getting back getting stuck in doing his duties first yeah it's it's their game model doesn't need him to do that so much. Uh, and so he's not in that position as often. So he's a perfect fit for how they play. It makes total sense, you know, to, to hit him on the defensive side, it's kind of easy to do that, you know, but that's not really his right. profile, but to your point, yeah. I mean, as he evolves, cause he's still young, that could be an area for growth and an area that if he buttons that down, I mean, you can start to say he might be the best outside back in the world. Right. All right. So, um, you know, last week we had uh, Professor Stephen Bank on the program to sort of explain the contract negotiations with the women's national team and U.S. soccer. Um, and it's convoluted. It's a little bit confusing. Um, and it's ongoing, apparently. So uh, we had a lot of feedback from a lot of listeners uh, and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, calls and texts. So this is an issue that people are thinking about. 
um, on the uh, on the American side of things because I don't think anybody is coming out looking great in this. So hopefully this is a good resolution. So I wanted to continue our conversation with it. Um, and um, so we've got Julie Fowdy on the show. Julie always makes a lot of sense. Uh, a lot of clarity. Uh, when I worked with her over at ESPN, she always made sense of stuff that, you know, people get very emotional and mad and all of a sudden they're, they're just saying uh, dumb things. And she's always had the ability to just sort of, you know, drill down and make a lot of sense. So uh, I reached out to her and uh, thankfully she got back to us. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we join the great Julie Foudy. You're listening to Over the Ball. All right, as I said, last uh, week, we talked to Professor Stephen Bank at UCLA. He's a contract uh, lawyer, international sports law, my old job. Uh, and he kind of walked us through the contract that, uh, that had been going on and still is going on. And I don't know, Chris, I think maybe you and I were a little bit more confused at the end of it, but uh, it, was, it was good to see there was a little bit of resolution. So I figured I would reach out uh, to an old associate, my friend I worked with at ESPN um, a while ago, uh, who always seemed to make sense of all uh, complex matters and sort of drills down. Olympic gold medalist and World Cup champion, a woman, who, a person who really needs no introduction in the sports world and in many worlds. Uh, I call you an international influencer. Julie Fowdy, <laughs> welcome to Over the Ball. How are you? Oh, Kevin, you're my BFF for that. International <laughs> influencer. International women of mystery. Well, I got to say, then, really to give you guys your props, the, the women's program, not just you know, nationally, but internationally has really changed the view of women's sports. And it's something that we should all be so, so proud of. So I say you're an influencer because you are, you're just not one of those ones who are taking selfies of yourself everywhere. You know, uh, here's me at a restaurant. Here's my, here's my calamari. Here's my, you're just, uh, you're doing some great stuff. So look, this contract negotiation, I had a lot of conversations with people who don't know soccer and you know how we get with soccer. We sort of defend our, our, our program, our, our thing. And, a lot of people were misinformed about what was happening. Um, equal pay, two things happened. One, when I realized that the women did not have the same travel accommodations, planes, fields, all that stuff, blew me away that that was yeah. actually allowed to be yeah. put forward that way. What, what I, I got confused about was uh, how convoluted the different contracts, different CBA agreements, yeah. and it seemed like no one came out of this thing looking good. Right. Whether it was the, the women's program, the U.S. soccer, the men, you know, it was, it was really kind of sad in, in lots of ways. Yeah. So I'm glad there's a little bit of resolution. What's your take on it all? Yeah. Um, I am thrilled there's resolution uh, because, to your first point, there has been this inequity for a very long time. Back mm -hmm. in our day, we were fighting for equitable pay. And it wasn't equal back then as it is now um, and as it, I think should be now. But it was mm -hmm. like, hey, why are we only getting 10 bucks a day per diem when they're getting, you know, 50, the men? And why are we staying oh. in the Holiday Inn when they're at the bloody Ritz-Carlton? Like, we started right. to see these things, and we were like, this is starting to kind of piss me off, honestly. Starting? Um, yeah, that, yeah. This, is like, what, this is back in the 90s, right? This is yeah. when we first we're getting, you know, wind of these things. Like, why do they have seven massage therapists and we are fighting for one? Um, so it's those little things that started to fester way back. And, you know, it's continued. And with this group and with obviously the achievements of the women's side and the commercial achievements and the recognition of, um, I think, from the sponsorship side of, yeah. you know, how popular that women's team is, they, you know, they started asking for equal pay and for, um, for what was right. So 
I mean, the second part of that, though, is I, I do agree with you. It's, it's a complete waste of energy when you're constantly fighting each other. And you had all sides fighting each other, whether it was, you know, oh, you know even some women's players, which I don't like, saying, you know, the men have done what, won nothing. You know, why are they getting more? And then, you know, the men saying, because FIFA pays us all this. And then U.S. soccer saying, but we're, you know, we're left kind of with our hands tied because we don't control the FIFA money. And it's just right. a waste of negative energy, honestly. So that's why, in large part, I'm so thrilled that they are one step closer. They're not there, obviously, because the CBA and the collective bargaining agreement needs to get ratified and that gets solved. Um, but it's the first time, honestly, Kevin, that I have heard all three sides, so men, women, U.S. soccer, say with optimism, we can get there. And honestly, just that is like, what? Yeah. That never happens. So I'm hopeful for the first time in a very long time. Chris? Julie, what's the next step with that CBA in terms of the timeline and, and you know, the, who's going to be sitting at that table? Do you have a sense for how that happens next? Yeah. Um, I think the, you know, the thing I'm hearing from uh, the women's side and from U.S. soccer, I haven't talked to, to Mark Levenstein lately, but is that, um, you know, that they're, they're much closer. The, the one nugget that's still hanging out there that is such a big piece of the puzzle, and it's a large one, is the FIFA money. Um, yeah. But that they all agree that nothing's going to get done unless it's fair to all of them. And whether that's equal, equal in terms of equal split or there's a different way they can get creative about splitting that up. And so all parties feel good about it. Um, because I know too, that even though the women are getting away from that guaranteed contract, which Kevin, you kind of mentioned at the right. top was, you know, something that we had fought for because we didn't make that much money at the club level as men did. So we needed some guarantees. Well, now that they're making more at the club level and the women's game has evolved, they can kind of back off those guarantees, although they still think they want a few of those protections, insurance, injury protection, a couple of those. And so that will be part of the negotiation of the FIFA prize money, I'm sure, as well. Um, but we're going to get and, – and that's going to be the last thing they're hashing out is, is how do you break that up where it's fair to all? It's, it's, you know, in air quotes, equal to all. Because U.S. soccer doesn't want to see itself in another lawsuit, you know, five, right. ten years down the road. And so that's why um, – I'm confident it will actually get done because they're all going to have to agree to it. Well, that's the biggest thing that pushback that I've heard, you know, people have tweeted and sort of reached out to us about if the FIFA money for the men is different then the women should get a percentage of that. They, you know, most people don't agree with that on the, on the men's side. Um, what I, what I was thinking to go back to your point about the guaranteed contracts, the progression of the sport, it almost mirrors a lot of the way the men went through things. Uh, you know, there was no livable wage that you could make as a, as a soccer player. And I think those guaranteed spots were great because it gave some stability uh, to move forward and commit yourself as a professional year after year. Um, do you think it, it hurt uh, an ability for a coach to make changes to pull players in and out when you have guaranteed, you know, contracts with players? Yeah, absolutely. It limits yeah. you a little bit. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, Vlad Glendonovsky will like that he's got a little more flexibility going right. forward. And, you know, those were some hard decisions because there was only so many slots and they kept getting less over the years that you could guarantee contracts to. And so um, hard decisions on who gets those contracts, who gets, you know, that final guarantee. And I'm just thrilled that we're in a place finally globally with the women's game where they 
you know, there's a market now for women's players and they can play in different countries and, uh, and make a considerable amount of money. I mean, that was never the case again in my era. You could, you could play, you know, in Japan, their early league was playing a little bit more and you could break even in Sweden, but we weren't making anything, um, that we could live on. And so now you're at a place where that, you know, you're not wholly dependent on the national team salary for you to be a professional footballer, which is a good right. Thing. And to see the other programs in other countries, and that's the direct influence of, of what you guys started here. So it's, it is, it's progress. And I think a lot of these problems are in a way as soccer people, we always go, Hey, you know what? These are good problems. We're actually yeah. having contract negotiations about money, about contracts, about stuff that we never had TV rights, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, um, and honestly, like for the first time, like if we can get this contract done, the teams will all be supporting each other because now if right. the women do well, the men benefit. And if the men do well, the women benefit. So instead of going against each other, we're, we're all, you know, rowing in the same direction finally. And you can actually focus on soccer rather than hating us soccer. Right. <laughs> a lot of our energy on, ah, yeah, why so, are you doing these things? Yeah. Well, and some of it, like when it was disclosed, it was pretty, pretty like scary like we didn't know you know players didn't know what you guys were going through and it's really uh you know uh sunshine's the best disinfectant chris yeah i think there's i mean our u.s women's national team is such a such a rocket ship it's been so successful for so long it's just shocking to us as never mind soccer people we're just sport fans that there's been this issue so like applauding everybody to get it to the forefront here and get this thing solved but I'm curious how other countries now are doing it. Julie, am I right that it's, I think it was Denmark who stepped up and said, hey, we're going to make everything equal between the men's and women's side. And are there other countries doing that to your knowledge? Well, there are, there have been a few. I think Norway was another one. Australia has said it, but here's, here's the catch. They, they say it's equal, but it's equal percentage of prize money. And as we know, that prize money is very different for the men as it is for the women. So Say the men are getting 15% of their prize money. The women are getting the same percent, but it's their prize money, the women's prize money, which is obviously 15% of a much smaller nugget. So, um, I, and there's no way in hell that our women were going to sign that kind of deal, which is what originally was proposed. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll give you the same percentage of FIFA prize money. It's like, no, because, you know, the men win, they're making 40 million versus the women win, winning, they're making 2 million. Um, and it's, it's considerably less. So I don't think that's equal. I think where we're at with this is it's, it's truly going to be equal, which means the men are going to have to give up some of that, um, obviously. But I, I think with, uh, with you could also make the argument on the other side that the women ha have had such commercial success that they could be, even be possibly bringing in more on the sponsorship side. Um, I have always proposed one pot everything goes into that pot and you know revenue gay revenue merchandising uh fifa money and you split that evenly um i don't know where, where they're going to end up on that but it'll be a well, variation of that well because they've bundled the tv rights and things so it does get convoluted and that money right. is fungible and i think you know it supports so many things all the way to the youth level that i don't think people realize that either yeah yeah, and that's the thing. You don't want to take all the money, of course, for the two national teams because you got a lot of youth programming, uh, which is critical to our country being successful for generations. So right. um, that that's something that's top of mind right now for Cindy Parlow Cohn, the president, because you know she can't she can't overspend on these two teams and not have anything left to to create a legacy for for U.S. soccer. 
I, th I think she's done a great job coming in. She's sort of calmed things down oh, and said, yeah. let's, let's look at everything. Let's be reasonable here. Let's calm our heads prevail. Uh, I've really enjoyed watching how she's operated. And, she's yeah. and she gets it, right? I mean, she yeah. knows. She knows it from both sides. She's played it. She's lived it. Um, and honestly, most of that was just relationship building and trust mm -hmm. and trying to, to, you know, build bridges back to both sides, to both teams, which um, takes a lot of time. But I think it helps when you have a player at the helm doing that. Yeah, Chris? Yeah, I was curious about the, the CBA and this idea of the men and the women splitting the pot because that, that's obviously the solution. You know, it, it, it's easy, it's fair, it's equitable, and from cycle to cycle, it may alter a little bit, but in the long run, there should be some value for both parties. Does that mean that in the current CBA negotiations that we will have two negotiations going on, men with the Federation, women with the Federation, or would the men and the women combine and have one collective bargaining agreement? Well, U.S. soccer has said to them, like, you need to combine. You, gotta, you two need to sit in together on this and figure it out. And they have wanted that one pot scenario of, of look at, you know, obviously all of the pot can't go to the men and the women, but say U.S. soccer gets 50% of the pot and then the men and women split the other 50, 25, 25, and then they decide how they want to pay it out, right? But all money goes in and you decide if you want guaranteed salaries, that's fine. You decide who gets paid. That's your pot. And you spend it as you want as a players association. Um, but that's been the challenge is getting the two sides to sit and figure out that pot. And I think in the end, it won't necessarily be one contract is my guess. Um, and one pot, it'll be two contracts, but they will mirror each other largely because again, us soccer isn't going to allow them not to be mirrored because it means lawsuits down the road for them. So I think they will only settle the three parties if it's, very similar contracts with obviously some nuances for each side that want different things. Like the men right now don't want pregnancy leave uh, and, uh, and they don't right. want maternity leave and all these things that maybe are really important to the women. So these little, right. I think, nuanced layers will come in, but largely economically they'll mirror each other. All right, good stuff. So this is, well, this should be interesting next couple of months um, when this all kind of comes to fruition, hopefully. But how does this affect Hope Solos? It should come to fruition, hopefully, by the end of March, because that's when the women's CBA is up. So that's, their, that's the goal I keep hearing all of them say, that they, they've got to get this done in the next month. I feel it's like the Mueller hearings are just going on forever. The investigation <laughs> for months and months, and there's no there's no resolution. So, um, hey, let's talk about this new look U.S. Women's National Team. Uh, yeah. A lot of young bodies in there this uh, this past the five win uh, five nil win over Iceland. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts? Uh, you know, it's funny, Julie. You're, I hearken you guys back to the early days of the men's national team, where like Harksy and Miola, yeah. uh, those guys stayed around for two three cycles. Um, now there seems to be a lot of pressure, which is good, right? Competition coming up, new young players. Yeah. Uh, what's your take on the, some of the, the youngsters coming up? Yeah. Um, I, I actually just called those three games at the She Believes Cup, and, and they struggled in the first game a bit. I mean, although they, they dominated, had possession, you know, outshot 18 to 6 or something, Czech Republic, but they couldn't finish. And, but then they kind of grew into it, right? 5 nil against New Zealand, 5 nil against Iceland. And – the thing about that younger group is they want to play. They, they've got a ton of creative, dynamic, fast players. And, you know, Sophia Smith, uh, Mal Pugh on the other side, who's playing up front with her, Katarina Macario, who's playing in the nine. 
Uh, Ashley Sanchez is another really creative one. I mean, you look around the field and they can play. Um, and I think it was interesting because Andonovsky decided, Vlatko decided, like, I'm going to bring in a mostly young team rather than a few veterans as we, you typically see. Right. He's like, no, I don't have the time. Because if I bring in those veterans, I'll end up playing those veterans and I need to see these younger kids, you know, thrive and survive without really the help of the veteran group. So um, I think mission accomplished in that sense because they did have to get a win in that final game. And, and I, I think that there's, a, there's clearly a handful of, that I think are going to be a piece of the puzzle for 2023 for sure. Um, and now he's going to start layering in back in some of those veterans. I think people panic, like, wait, how do you not have any of the veterans there? And it's like, come on, they're going to have some, just not in February. Right. The men went through the same thing with the, you know, people were talking about Michael Bradley or Josie coming back into the, yeah. you know, but I think with COVID and the whole big break that everyone had, that, that, that uh, dovetailing of players going in and out didn't quite, happen that way this time um and so it seems like it's happening with the women's program as well yeah. and plus julie you know like you can train as hard as you want in preseason when that first game comes man it's at a different level it's at a different yeah. speed and then at the national international level these young players need this experience because it's like uh yeah. people are moving fast and and yeah, furious exactly. you know and you got to get used to it and then on top of that you know the the world cup qualifiers which are, are over the summer in july typically it would just be like okay you, you know you're going to play in the world cup qualifiers and then the olympic qualifiers have always been a separate event for women mm -hmm. but they're combining the two this summer so you know you have four teams that will go to the world cup which you know if, if we're not in the top four, something is seriously wrong in CONCACAF and in, in women's football. Right. So that's a, that's a no brainer. They're going for, for world cup, but you only take two teams to the Olympics because it's such a small field. So that's actually, I think why he's had to accelerate it is because of that being earlier this year in July. So it's a double qualifier. They got to get to the Olympics as well. Good stuff. Chris. Yeah. And the Olympic qualifiers, you know, obviously we're looking at ourselves. We're looking at Canada. What, what do you, what do you think in terms of the region? Like who might pop up and, and create some competition? Yeah. Well, you know, Mexico always threatens, but then, you know, culturally it's just, it's so slow. Uh, I always am, am, am frustrated by that because I feel like they just have so much upside there and, yes. and, and you see it with their women's pro league, some of the exciting games and, um, and yet they just can't quite get there. So Mexico's always threatening. Uh, Costa Rica has always been threatening. But uh, honestly, CONCACAF has been really slow uh, to develop. I mean, comparatively, when you see Europe taking off and you even see Africa taking off and you see different parts of the world taking off and you look at CONCACAF and go, what, what, what's going on here? Why aren't we, we moving? Jamaica had some success in the last World Cup, so they finally got in. But Hopefully, with the fact that four can go now because of the, the expanded field, there's 32 teams now going uh, to the, the next World Cup in 2023. That actually they're hoping, and FIFA's hoping this, which is why they expand the field, that that's, this will cause more funding and more support and more uh, investment in these women's programs because they haven't been getting much. Yeah, the rate of – sorry, Kevin. The, the yeah. rate of the, the growth in our region, is, it doesn't – it's not the same as these other regions. And oh, it's, yeah, it's like CONCACAF – CONCACAFs itself you know we, we just we can't quite get VAR sorted out we can't get the yeah. other women's teams and the funding to compare growth wise to what's happening elsewhere and that would be great in terms of our competition and maybe push the needle a little bit for our own program and we might hit higher levels if we had more competition within the region exactly exactly you know, I, I think it goes to a more grassroots level, though. I went to Costa Rica with my daughter to play, you know, a soccer tournament there. 
and a lot of the young girls didn't play. They were all in their Catholic school uniforms in their dresses around on the outside. And, and they finally came out and played, but they said, oh, we, we can't play. And I'm like, I just thought, wow, it's, you're dealing with sort of a sexist kind of culture, perhaps, or, or, or throwback, you know, maybe the way it was thinking here in the 50s or 40s. Or, I don't know, but it seems like that's what I love about the, the women's national teams program is that they have at least started the conversation in places where it's like, yeah. hey, this isn't right, man. This, yeah. this isn't cool. Um, and I think that's why Europe has sort of moved ahead, you know, quicker with that yeah. um, as opposed to, to these regions. So, um, but then again, Julie, uh, they start being powerhouses. It's going to be tougher to qualify. I know. <laughs> so, right? exactly. That's, that's what, we what have, I've like, said for years. I'm like, oh, crap. Spain is finally <laughs> taking women. Yeah. Seriously, we are, we're in trouble. I mean, I've said it for decades. The moment Brazil actually takes it seriously, we're done. So, <laughs> it's a good well, problem to have. I hope we get there. That's the, that's the thing, the passion. So, hey, you know, Chris has a connection with uh, Michelle Akers that he wanted to talk to you about a little bit. Chris? Well, I just had a question. Like I have this, it's a personal thing with me where like I, I as, as great as Michelle Akers is, I don't think she gets enough credit oh, for, no, for no. who she is. Yeah. So like what, one of my little agendas in life is to teach all the men's and women's teams that I work with who Michelle Akers is. Right. So can, can you shed some light on that? Like, tell me, yeah. I mean, obviously she's the stud, right? But like, oh. give, give, give us something about who she really is in the landscape of our soccer history. Do you know what her, her nickname was, Chris, with us? No. Mufasa from Lion King. The hair. Like lion heart, lion mentality. I just, someone just asked me the other day, who's, who's the greatest female soccer player of all time? And without question, I was like, Michelle Akers. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right. But our kids don't know that. We got to teach yeah. them this stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. Because she, she had size. She had pace. She, I always tell people, I was like, she was technical. She was physical. She was strong. She could finish any way. She could play any position. She'd leave everything out there, including Tough. like teeth and yeah, bones yeah. and, <laughs> uh, you know, appendages. So, yeah, she she and and then she did it through um, all her chronic fatigue, Epstein Barr syndrome, yeah, right. which is really? uh, which is crazy in itself too. I was just talking to her the other day. I'm so happy she's down in Orlando with Amanda. That's that's awesome news. So yeah, well, tell her there's a fan out here uh, in uh, LA who, who's her. who's shouting her 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 song. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think the best... I, know, I say that all the time. You guys need to know who Michelle Akers is. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> I love to hear those stories because as, you know, as players and former players, there is nothing better than a good teammate. It says yeah. the world about someone. When uh, someone is a, a, a good teammate, gets down in the trenches with you and you, and you go to war there. So, And uh, actually, not, not to make a, uh, a weird transition, but speaking of war, this terrible uh, Russian invasion of the Ukraine. I'm glad that FIFA actually stepped yeah, up and finally. did it because yeah. like the women's program, and I, I keep blowing smoke here, but I'm telling you that the way you guys have changed the conversation in the world, soccer has a unique place in this world where yeah. we can make a difference in people's lives and countries. And I was happy to see FIFA originally dragged its feet on it a little bit and then they jumped yeah. in and did it. So what are your thoughts on that? I was so happy to see too, the response from all the teams. Mm -hmm. And players. I mean, I've, I saw, you know, all the kits with, you know, uh, Ukrainian flags as they were coming to warm up the different teams. Some people came out with Ukrainian flags uh, wrapped around every player. Um, and wow. just, I mean, and people posing, as you saw, man, you do, I think, uh, the other day with, you know, peace signs and 
um, and the power of sport and these right. moments to globally uh, speak up and stand up, I think is important. So yeah, FIFA totally were dragging their feet. I just got a note today, a text from FIFA this morning when I woke up saying, okay, we're there. <laughs> we Good. got there. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's, it, it, we've seen UEFA do it before with back in uh, when Czechoslovakia was uh I think having a civil war and they got banned from that 92 euros, I think where Denmark came in. So um, I, I think it's important for the world to stand up and say, this isn't right for sure. And they are and thankfully. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and even to watch like the Chelsea game, just the, the political overtones and machinations. Oh, yeah. yeah. You can't separate the two. And so, you know, sports can change, change the world. So, uh, Hey Julie, uh, so great getting caught up with you. I know you're busy yeah. and I appreciate you, you fitness in and, and talking, no uh, talking footy with us. We appreciate no it. And uh, hopefully by the end of March, like you said, this will be, uh, this will be all yeah. done and dusted and we can go on and win the world cup men and women crossed, right wouldn't that be nice It'd be fantastic hey Chris, good luck this year out at lmu we'll come up and watch a game thank you so much i look forward if you do let me know we'll have you in, and, and happy to have you on campus yeah i have a 15 year old who plays so she'll want to come check it out i'm sure awesome nice. you guys there are it is. Re recruiting we did some recruiting on this over the ball podcast no <laughs> no, no, no not allowed not no no allowed. oh my bad my bad sorry hey julie <laughs> julie thanks so much all the best all right see you guys see ya bye all right, Chris, how great is it talking to Julie Foudy? Uh, though I did whip out, didn't I? I was basically, I wanted to ask her about, you know, people complaining about the women winning and not the men. And I feel like saying the competition is apples and oranges, but either I didn't have the balls or I just forgot. I'm not sure which. <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, you're talking to Julie Foudy. You know, yeah. she's a legend. She's taken the torch from A to Z. And it, it's when do, you, when do you step in and ask those kinds of questions? But all the women can do is play the games that are in front of them and they crush it. So there's like very little margin for that. But how do you compare it to the men's side? There's a, apples and oranges, right? In terms of right. the path to winning a world cup, it's just different from our history and their history and what they've done with it. And the competition, you know, and I, I had a back and forth with some of my old teammates uh, and one of the guys coaches women in Texas and he says, uh, you know, should be equal everything. And I was like, well, they don't bring in as much money because of the World Cup. So why, you know, uh, I, I don't get it. I, it's, that's what I would always say, the Title IX mentality of this or the fact that WNBA should make what the NBA makes. No, because they don't bring in as much money. But because everything is bundled, uh, the, the revenues have been bundled historically, that it's tough to, then they have to split the pot because if the money's all going into one, you know, one pot. And if, if that's how you bundle the TV rights and things, then you have really no choice. Yeah, the structure is different, right? Because the federation's nonprofit. So if it's a nonprofit, right. don't the members share? So you would say, okay, that means it's equal for everyone going around. You know, WNBA, NBA, those are profit-driven and different models. So it's it's interesting where the question lands, and that's I think where there's the controversy behind it. Right, and then you have uh, you know the World Cup and and qualifying, and and you know they are well-funded as far as the world's concerned. So, and, and, you know, some people had a problem with that when I said that, which was, which was they're the best funded national team, women's team in the, in the world. And yeah, but that's, that's not the argument, I guess. So uh, yeah, it's different, yeah. but uh, how great is she though? She's always, always so fun to talk to. So, um, so 
Good stuff. Great, great player. And a Michelle Akers fan. I mean, I had heard that about Michelle Akers. A couple buddies of mine, actually professional players, played with her and said, dude, she could play at a she could play at men's professional soccer. She's got everything. She yeah. had everything. Yeah, yeah, all the all the all the, the the qualities you'd want all in the field, but also all the intangibles. So tough, so bold, so brave, and just dominant. You know, it's it's uh it's rare to see a player in a landscape be that dominant and she was that and the thing about her is you know sometimes we look back on pro sports and we say well could that player in the 30s do it today right you have this real sense when you look at her that if you dropped her into a game today you know in real time if she was fit and her in her prime she could do everything that she did back then today and that's not always the case when you go over decades yeah, but you're talking about strength and uh, quickness and desire. I mean, that's one thing I have noticed with the, the younger generation, and not to sound like a, a, an old man, but I love the fact that, that young people are trying to really develop skills now. They're seeing things on television that they can emulate, but there is sometimes a lack of toughness. A lot of, like you, know, like you said, coming to a new program as a freshman, you're inheriting these guys and women uh, to basically say, oh, it all starts all over again. You got to suck it up. You're starting at the bottom. And it seems like sometimes early success can be uh, bad in a way because yeah. things come a little too early and they think they are great players. And then they get with great players and they're like, oh, wait a minute. I'm trying to play D1 ball or whatever. It's like, wow, uh, maybe I wasn't. And it's, yeah, it's and it's the coach's fault. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nowadays, it's always the coach's fault. But like mm-hmm. the toughness, I, I think that needs to be coached. And I, I don't think – a lot of people understand how that needs to be coached. A lot of times when you mm-hmm. hear that, I think the inexperienced person might think that means, well, that means being more physical, being physically tough. No, and, and a no, lot of it yeah. is really about mental toughness and just what is your resilience for your ability to go from play to play after a lack of success, success. How do you handle failure? How do you handle success? Like that has to be trained. And, and so the best players are the ones that have a pretty good grasp of that. I think we see it in other sports too, like basketball, tennis, like just listen to, let's say, for example, Rafa Nadal, and his interviews after a match, how humble he is, how much he talks about the required toughness. He tells you everything you need to know in his interviews. And for the young kids nowadays to be able to tap into all of this on YouTube and hear all these things, it's all the info is out there hopefully they can marry that with a good coach at the youth levels. And that gives them a chance to succeed at the higher levels. And this is what Julie was talking about with the young players on the national team now getting some experience early because they need it. Cause when the games that count come around, you know, you, you have to have this experience. So, Hey, one great piece of news that I'm looking at here, uh, Jesse Marsh looks like he's heading to Leeds, huh? Yeah. Amazing. You know, this is uh, a guy that, that has grown up through the American system. Um, I was fortunate to share some time with him when he was on the back end of his playing career at Chivas USA. I was connected there as well at the time and, and had a lot of time to, to share with him there and got to know him there and have been in touch with him through the years. And he, was a, he was a bit of a badass as a player, wasn't he? Badass in the sense that he was tough. He relied yeah. on that. You know, he, he, he needed that. He wasn't always, uh, I mean, he'd laugh, but, you know, he wasn't the most athletically gifted player on the planet, uh-huh. but he certainly made up with it, with his smarts and his intangibles. And uh, he was underrated in terms of his soccer playing ability, um, but certainly took himself to a higher level because of his mentality. And that's what he puts into his teams now. But I remember in his last year of his playing and we were talking about, you know, what he was going to do next. He was very clear that he was going to get into coaching and that he 
he was gonna venture into different waters and the fact that he's landed in Europe and done different things now, fantastic. And now we've got another American Premier League manager after Bob. Now it's now it's Jesse. Yeah, he's had a game plan all the way along. So it's been interesting to watch. How will he what is his coaching philosophy and style? What can you garner from his uh, overseas influences yeah like if you wanted to take a knock on him you could say that well he's been only in the red bull model for a really long time obviously he would push back on that and and deservedly so he knows much more than just the red bull model having said that if you look at this higher at leeds where they're coming off of a team that you know has bielsa coached which is very man-to-man-ish very direct very um very much resembles the the red bull model this hire makes some sense it comes from that family tactically uh so that's where i think that this is why he's landed there i don't know if another premier league job opens up if he's getting that one but this is a, a rather good fit for both parties both for him and for the team and he's a bit of a bob bradley disciple isn't he a princeton guy and then uh you know coach with bob yeah, I am more than just a bit, you know, he'll go out of his way to tell you that Bob's not his father. So like, you know, he <laughs> played for Bob. He's been at Bob with Chicago fire. He's been with Bob with the U S national team as a player, as a coach, he was USA. I mean, their careers have been parallel for so long. Uh, and, and then they now have gone in different directions where, where Bob doesn't really play in that Red Bull style, but, but he has gone into that side. So they kind of dovetailed away for a while. Um, but I've always been in touch and, you know, very much cool. a Bob Bradley disciple in terms of we'll management. Get him on, we'll get him on the program here. And I think it's uh, maybe some vindication for American coaches over there because, you know, your friend Bob Bradley got screwed over there. It was, uh, it was ridiculous. Um, yeah. Yeah, he didn't get much of a chance. It, it's, it's, a, it's something to talk about. But I think behind the scenes, you know, he didn't get a preseason. He didn't get a transfer window. He didn't get to bring in his own staff and all that stuff. Right. And uh, he had a very, very short ramp. And when, when, when things got just a little bit tough, the management buckled on him and, and let him loose. So he didn't get yeah, much of a chance. Let's hire Sam Allardyce again or something, whatever the old English style, they go back to that. So, uh, all right. So good stuff. Um, what are you up to this week to watch? This I am going to, yeah. Looking forward to, to the second weekend of MLS and all that stuff. And, uh, yeah catching up on some of those next round of games. And yeah, I, I have to go back though. I have a Larry David question, which is, oh, you do. yeah. When you say to me that you hung with him for three days, I think the common question would be, what's it like with him privately versus publicly? Like, is he as funny when you're just hanging as uh, when he's, uh, you know, on show? Well, that's a question that pretty much every comic gets asked. I think usually um, I would say that, at dinner, he did a little riff about fish, how he's not eating fish anymore because he just doesn't like it. He knows it's supposed to be good for minute. And it was kind of right out of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. But he's quiet and more subdued. Um, but yeah. he's very opinionated. And he's always got the uh, the opposite opinion of what you think is going to come out of his mouth. It's kind of it's kind of hysterical. But, I, you know, I mean, I guess my question is just the level of fame now. Uh, and But coupled with Instagram and coupled with Twitter, and how all these young kids, it's their whole life that, that they suddenly believe this is their moment to intrude on this man's life because it makes them have more Twitter followers or influence or something. And I think that's something that uh, people in the past, famous people in the past, haven't had to deal with, you, you know. Um, but I very much saw why uh, you avoid crowds. I, I see it. It's people just don't know how to behave. Yeah. Well, credit um, to you for avoiding the syndication money and just keeping your... Yeah, 
Because yeah. if four hundred fifty million dollars, you know what I would do? I would just I'd have a boat, uh, be off, you know, with supermodels. It's everywhere. So many problems, um, yeah. you know, and it's just tiring after a while. Yeah. Well, way to stick to your guns on that, proud of you. Thank you. I appreciate. It. I'm a man of uh, high high standards. So, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, great guys. So, Chris, uh, good stuff. I thought uh, we talked a little bit about that Liverpool zero zero game, uh, but that was that was a fantastic zero zero game. I mean, you have people who don't. Uh, no soccer, like how could a game zero zero be fun to watch? Oh my God, that was something else. That was just breathtaking back and forth. Uh, great saves. Uh, just amazing. You could just tell the players were like, are oh, you got to be kidding me? And then yeah. it would go in the back of the net and then it'd be offsides. It was just, it was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. The scoreline in our sport, it can be so deceiving, right? Cause it's right. like, I've seen amazing zero zero games and this was one of them. And then I've seen three, two games that are, eh, you know, so it's, right, right. uh, you can't go by that and work backwards. You have to just hope that when you sit down that you're, you're opening up a nice bottle of wine. You hope that's what unfolds in front of you. Well, I was said it with David Letterman. I remember years back, it was the World Cup going on. I think South Korea played somebody like South Korea played like uh, Cameroon. To, and David Letterman comes out and goes, South Korea and Cameroon, zero, zero, yes. <laughs> you know, you're like, ah, shit, man. Like, yeah, well, the Simpsons did it too. When they yeah. do that little, uh, they have that little visual of, of soccer being played and it's just like the most boring thing ever where like one animated character playing into another and it's just at two miles an hour and it's just so terrible. And as a soccer fan, you're like, come on, please. It's much better than that. I used to talk on stage. I used to talk about my father. He would come to my games, just totally wouldn't understand what was going on. He'd be like, what the, what the hell's going on? I go, well, that was a 30-yard pass, Dad, to his stride. He took it one time, settled, and then shot. He kicked it to him, and he kicked it in the net. What's so big about that? I'm like, oh, my God. If I had to explain everything for you. So, all right. Well, it was great to get caught up with Julie. And like she said, she ended on a positive note saying, basically, hopefully by the end of March, we can get this behind us and we can unify as a country because enough people take shots at soccer as it is. Uh, we don't need um, us uh, sort of uh, hitting friendly fire uh, with us. So, um, so it was great to talk to Julie. All right, everybody, that's all the time we have today on Over the Ball. I'd like to thank our guest, of course, Julie Foudy. What did I say? Global influencer, and she was. For International influencer, double Exactly, a man, of, a person of mystery. Uh, for Chris Chamonix and Kevin Flynn, uh, I am, uh, I'm Kevin Flynn. But, hey, I, I got to remind everybody, 424-229-2247. Keep your questions coming in. Call, leave a message if you have a question that, uh, that we haven't addressed with Julie or Professor Bank or any of the people that we have on the show. Um, reach out to us. Uh, let us know what you like, what you don't like. Like us on, uh, on Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. Again, the number is 424-229-2247. All right, everybody, I want to thank our producer, Alistair uh, St. Hill, and, uh, and everyone over at Octane Media. I'm Kevin Flynn for Chris Amity's. We'll talk to you next time. 